0: thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we open our hearts to your word. And we thank you that your word is true, that your truth bury itself in our lives so deep that we cannot turn away from it. And Lord, may we serve you all the days of our life with the help and power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pastor? Amen. Thank you, Justin. We're continuing our journey toward fullness. Now, the fact of the matter is we've got... uh, Basically two subsets left in this. Um, I plan on being through with the topic of fullness by um, late October, probably, uh, as we get ready to move into the holiday season. Um, someone asked me and I got their permission to, to share this. They said, uh, I'd made a, we were in a conversation. I said, I know when you preach the word, anything contributes to fullness. So I said this could be a never-ending series if we wanted to approach it that way. But I said there are there are some specific items that we wanted to achieve. He said, uh, "Well, how, how long are you going to stay on fullness?" He seemed a little concerned, and uh, I said, "Well, I said I think we've probably got about eight or nine more messages." He said, "Well, I just wondered you've been on it a while." I said, Is, you all right? And he said, "Well, I'd like something different." And and he said, uh, he he said, "So how long are you gonna stay on it?" I said, "Well, let me just ask you this question: Do you feel full?" And he said, "No." I said, "Well, then we'll stay till you feel full." He, I, I think he he turned from a questioning member to a a great advocate because he wants us to move on to something else so we're we're laughing with each other about that. We are moving that way. Let me tell you what we had tried to do and are still trying to do. We began by talking about the need for fullness. We spent about 3 weeks talking about what fullness means. You don't have to be walking in fullness to get to heaven. We go to heaven because Jesus paved the way. We go to heaven because of His grace in our lives. But He wants us in this world to experience a life that's described as joy unspeakable and full of glory. He came in His fullness so that we might walk in fullness... But I realize that it's a journey for most of us. It is for me, and it is for most of us. Jesus is the only one that ever walked the journey perfectly. But we 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 wanted to talk about the possibilities of fullness. Then we felt that it was so essential. In fact, it's essential. And if you want to use it from another perspective, it's impossible to not, I mean, to walk in fullness if you don't understand what Jesus has done for you. <laughs> now, we have a lot of times we teach on, you know, know who we are in Christ, and, and that's important, but it's more important to know what Christ has done in us. It's more important to know who He is. And I understand people that say that. That doesn't, that doesn't bother me. But we spent about 13, 14 weeks talking about what happened to us, words that talk about the choice of, that we made and the change that occurred and the consequences of that. We we got hopefully added some new vocabulary words to our Christianity uh, or even if they are words that we use we have a better understanding. And if you do not have that card, five by seven card, the the glossy with the 13 words or so, if you didn't get one of those, if you'll contact the church office we'll get one to you. It's um, It's a good thing to stick in your Bible or put on your refrigerator to remind you this is is what has happened in you. This is why we can walk in fullness. We spent a little bit of time talking about how to resist uh, a satanic invasion, a satanic attack. (coughs) Excuse me, because there's always pushback. There is always pushback from the enemy. That's not to give him glory, because he always loses. I mean, we know he's going to lose. When we read Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Man, all you got to do is watch news for about an hour and a half, and you're depressed. And and you say, there's there's no use. In heaven, that's the comedy hour. (laughs) It says in Psalm 2 that God laughs... Not at tragedy, not at injustice, not, in, not at war, but God laughs at the world's attempt to eradicate him from our destiny. So what's a depressing news hour to us is comedy hour in heaven. Not again at what's happening, but to think that they could do it, that they could get away with it. So we talked about that satanic pushback. We talked about surviving spiritual storms, spiritual attacks. Um, (coughs) Now, the last part of this that we want to look at, excuse me, um, in like mid-August to late October, I want to talk about just the practical. Because we know this, because of what God has done for us, because of who we are, because we know our enemy, because we're knowing our God, here here are about five or six practical steps and we'll we'll get to those practical steps. It'll be marching orders for us as we go forward. Um, um, And and let me say this, I I want to spend, uh, well, we started a couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, um, uh, about things called matters along the way traveling partners, you know, fellow fellow travelers, we called it. And um, we talked about three dynamics of living in peace with people, understanding those folks. And um, then we are right now as matters along the way, we want to talk about being aware of satanic plans. Now, we're going to find that there are... Uh, Basically, four things that the enemy will try to use. Um, and one of them is the master of all of it. It's the idea of deception. So, deception covers it all, uh, it's trying to create a false reality. But we're also going to make deception one of the four words. The enemy comes, uh, and, we're, and we're going to do an overview today. The enemy comes, and his first plan is to just dis- destroy you, to just wipe you off the map. Um, uh, I, I, I think it was uh, George Foreman that said when he began a, a match, he said if he thought that he sensed enough weaknesses in, in in his opponent, his goal was to end the fight within thirty seconds, just go and obliterate. He said that doesn't always work, but that was my goal. That's the way the enemy is. His first goal is destruction. We call it in the Bible persecution. We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk next week. Uh, I'm just giving you a heads up. Persecution Sunday next week. We're going to talk about persecution, how how to be persecuted well, how to survive persecution, how to find persecution and we're gonna talk about the fellowship of his sufferings. Uh, I promise you it'll end well, it'll, it'll end happy, but we're gonna talk about persecution next week uh, in detail. Mention it today, but in detail, we'll talk about Satan's goal of obliteration. The second thing that we wanna look at is the idea of deception, and deception is a satanic tool. Deception is the the devil's plan to separate us from truth. He wants to take us out, but if he can't, he wants to position himself so that he always stands between us and truth. And it's called deception. The third thing that he uses is, uh, there's two words that I use because it's hard to find one word that covers both dynamics, distortion or dilution. Um, the third idea is that he will either distort what you believe or dilute what you believe. Um, another word, if, if, if um, destruction is is persecution, then destruction or, or a distortion or dilution is is, uh, is pollution. He takes something that is pure and lovely and then he pollutes it. And then the third word, uh, that we want to talk about, destruction, deception, distortion, or delusion. Fourth word, really, is the word distraction. Um, He wants to eradicate you. If he can't do that, he wants to separate you from truth. Nobody is more miserable than a person who claims to be a Christian that spends their whole life explaining away the teaching of God, reworking it, reframing it retooling it. That's a miserable existence because you're speaking against something that cannot be broken and your whole life is given to breaking it. And um, I I don't understand. Some pastors are like that. Some churches are like that. Some Christians are like that. We have the faith that's been once and for all delivered to the saints and their life is spent uh, telling people why it's not true. And the Bible puts it this way, loved ones. Bear with me with my introduction today. The truth is, is like a rock. I mean, it's, it's a rock. And if you resist the truth, the rock falls on you. But if you accept the rock, you fall on the rock. And you find mercy and grace. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I Uh, But if he, if he can't get you separated from truth, he will try to let you walk in truth, but deluded with sin. And if nothing else works, if he can't get you to go down those paths, you will be surprised how often the enemy tries to, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking at, distraction, how he tries to bring distraction into your life. And this is the pattern that we find in the book of Acts. You say, well, I just, I just want a book of Acts experience. I know what you mean. You're talking about the healing and the miracles. And boy, we want all of that we can get. The problem is that there's just as much persecution and just as much deception and just as much dilution and just as much, uh, uh, um, well, I, I said distraction as there is these other things. And we've got to learn how to handle all of these things? That's that's what we're after. Um, so that explains why those of you that are tired of fullness—that's why we need to do this and get to the wrap-up so that we can move on to something else. Uh, you say, and you know, what are we going to do next, Pastor? After fullness? Well, probably another subject like being full or something <laughs> like that. No, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I'm joking. And and. The the person I'm talking about, it it was good natured. I got their permission to share that. It wasn't anything belligerent. (laughs) But um, I want to tell you at the foundation of where we're coming to, this this has always been a teaching church. It's always been a church that worked on series because we believe that uh, few things can be grasped in one Sunday, number one. And number two, um, we never have a Sunday where everybody's here we have between 2,500 or or about 2,500 or so people that call Christian life home, but because of schedules and whatnot, even nobody's here all the time. And we found out that in terms of announcements, if we want to get announcements to everybody, we have to do it three Sundays in a row to hit most of the people. And if that's the case with announcements, how much more so with sermons? That's why we give reviews and that's why we overlap. There's there's method to this madness. So um, thank you for, for bearing with us. We are told in Scripture our highest aspiration is to know God. And that's a life journey. We can spend all of our lives in pursuit of the Lord and still only know a sliver. It's not because He doesn't want us to know, it's just... He's God. And the best learners among us only know a part. Uh, when D.L. Moody was dying, one of the greatest preachers of the 19th century <coughs> impacted the world in a way few people have. When D.L. When D. Moody was asked on his deathbed, do you have any regrets? He said, I regret that I only barely began to scratch the surface to God's word. So, but we're in that journey to know God. Now, the good news, beloved, now are we the children of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. John was saying what D.L. Moody said. We're his children now. We're secure in him now. We're safe in him now, but what we're going to be hasn't even begun to show up. But the good news is this, but when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. That's good news. Okay? So we got to know God. Uh, that's, our, that's our heart. The second thing we're commanded to know, he said, know them who labor among you. We're not, we don't just say anybody, whosoever will come and work with children and do this, that, and the other. We need to know those that work among us because we are responsible for. The ministry of this church, and we're to know each other. We're to we're to be sure that people are walking the life, and our children are safe, and things like that. And um, we so so we have to know each other. And you know, our passion is to know God, but we enjoy getting to know each other. Uh, you know, I'm that old song. I'm so glad I'm part of the family of God. It, it's it's a delight to get to know people. So, oh, we hit a few bumps here and there. We have a few rough spots here and there, but generally, that's right. Generally, (laughs) generally we, it's just a thrill to get to know more and more of God's people. But we're told to know somebody else and that's, we don't like it. In fact, some people are so opposed to it that they say that it's evil and we shouldn't know anything about this third target. And this third target is our enemy. Now, I, I realize this. I think, especially those of you that understand deliverance ministry, if you're not careful, you can become enamored with evil. I, I mean, not that you admire it, but that it intrigues you. And we have to be careful especially if you are involved in discerning of spirits or or deliverance ministry you've got to understand that your focus can't be on the devil your focus always is on the Lord and secondarily on the Lord's people and the devil's somebody you've got to observe very carefully but we must observe him for this reason we are not to be ignorant of his devices we, we don't know him like we, we don't want to be on a, you know, we don't want to, well, I don't know what his last name is. I started to say we don't want to be on a first name basis with him, but we, we, we can just call him Deceiver, you know. I, I don't want him to, you know, I, I've been so frustrated because I don't even like to capitalize his name when I write, but spell correction always capitalizes it. So I want you to know when you see Satan in my notes and it's capitalized, that's not out of respect. That's that's the world system that changes a little S to a capital S, you know. Boy, that that went deeper than I wanted it to go. I'll tell you that. (laughs) But we're not ignorant of his devices. We're to understand the way he works. How, How do we understand the enemy? Well, first of all, through Scripture, the Bible tells of course, not even, not even counting the New Testament, we have the Old Testament, and Paul said twice, these stories are written to us. Loved ones, be careful. I, 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 I don't, I'm not impugning anyone's intention, but I told you that the enemy with deception wants to separate you from truth. Be careful of any teaching that minimizes the Old Testament or says there's nothing in the Old Testament for us today. I understand what a lot of people are trying to say. We don't live under the law. Uh, the law has been fulfilled in Christ. I understand that. But there's a whole movement that just says we need to just discredit, not discredit, l- let go of the uh, um, Old Testament, unhitch from it. But there's no way to understand the New Testament without it being hitched to the Old Testament. And those things are given to us so that we might understand. The New Testament. And, and, uh, and in the Old Testament, all of these things are given to us as examples to help us understand. So we understand the devil's devices, going all the way back to Genesis 3 from the Scripture. We also understand the devil's devices from our experiences. We we say, I, I need to be careful because the last time I walked down this road, I got in trouble. There were traps down this road that I didn't see. And and we we learn the devil's devices not only from from Scripture and not only from our experiences, but we learn the devil's devices also by the Spirit because you all know, I know it, we all know what it's like To move, just be walking through the day, you know, going someplace or about to look someplace, about to whatever. But all of a sudden, the peace of God in your heart is rattled. And you don't know why it's rattled. But if you don't pay attention to that, you'll find that it's the enemy has set you up to see something you ought not to see or to hear something you ought not to hear. Or to think something you ought not to think. And if you could just wind the clock back 30 seconds, it was the Holy Spirit prompting you, don't go there. This is not a healthy thing for you to do. And Paul put it this way, writing to the Corinthians... This is in your notes. We're talking about Satan's game plan. Now remember, this is the overview of what he does. We'll take them one by one for a few weeks, and I promise you it'll be, be productive for you. Number, uh, uh, not number two, 2 Corinthians 2, um, 2.11. He says, now be mindful of how you live. Don't let this happen. Don't let that happen. Because if you do, this will happen, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. He says, the enemy wants to get an advantage of you, but you don't need to fall into that trap. Why? For we are not ignorant of his devices. In other words, Paul was saying, just like you're learning God, just like you know those who labor among you, you know this rascal. You know the way he works and you are not ignorant of his devices. The Philip translation reads it this way. We don't want Satan to win any victory here. Can we say amen to that? We don't want Satan to win any victory here in this church, in our nation, in our home, in our family, in our neighborhoods. We don't want Satan to win a victory. And well we know his methods. Well we know his methods. So now that I've Kind of laid that foundation. Let's look very quickly at four words that summarize his methods. Now, again, we'll go into detail next week. We'll talk about destruction and we will be um, uh, looking at the teaching, New Testament teaching on persecution. Uh, when we get to de- deception, we will uh, talk about, we'll go all the way back to Genesis 3 and talk about the great deceiver because the deceiver wants to separate you from truth. He doesn't mind using the Bible, doesn't mind you using the Bible, as long as he can keep you separate from the truth of the Bible. Uh, The next week we're gonna talk about distortion. Uh, The persecution will have its roots in Acts chapter four. The distortion or delusion will have its roots in Acts chapter five, where God um, uh, used people like Barnabas to bring about a lot of good in the church. By selling uh, their property, there were a, there were thousands of Christians that were homeless in Jerusalem. Uh, not because they wouldn't work, but because most of them couldn't work. They came in for the for the festival, uh, the Feast of Pentecost. They heard Peter's preaching, the move of the Spirit. And they were saved on the day of Pentecost, and thousands of them didn't go home. Can you imagine what it would do to our church if we had just a day when for some unexplained reason we had 4,000, 5,000 visitors, and God moved in such a way everybody said, I know I'm on vacation, but I'm not going home. I've met the Messiah. I'm going to stay here and learn. And then all of a sudden we have to house 5,000 people and feed 5,000 people, um, or however many people. You know, were there, and um, uh, so what people were doing, and when the scripture says that nobody considered what they owned their own, that wasn't saying the church has to live in a communal mindset. That wasn't saying that's the way the church operates, where you know it's communal living. But it was a very unusual circumstance, and the church says we've got to help these people, and what happened as they began to get into a rhythm. The uh, Judaic Christians, those from a Hebrew background, the Hebrews always took care of widows and orphans. The Grecian Christians, from a Grecian background, they came from a culture that didn't take care of widows and orphans. And so what you've got is a clash of cultures in the church. You've got the Hebraic Christians who, yeah, mama doesn't have a husband uh, or, or she's got children Uh, but her husband was taken in the persecution or whatever. We're going to take care of her. We're going to feed her. But the Grecian members had nobody to represent them. They weren't part of the old structure. So you've got a person with the same circumstance on this side and a person with the same circumstance on this side. This one's being taken care of. This one's not. And they said, we have to have... Justice here, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, so to speak. That's from the Greek. And um, don't, don't go to your lexicon and look it up. I'm just I'm kidding about that. And the, the people said, we've got to fix this. This isn't right. And you know what the apostles said? They said, you are right. This isn't isn't right. We understand why this group's being fed. That's the way of the Hebrews. We understand why this group is not being fed. That's the way of a carnal system. Uh, The Greeks and the Romans, they didn't do this, generally speaking. They didn't do this. And, And let me just say this. We need to understand that the gospel is not just preaching the gospel, but it's caring for the needy. I mean, there's a balance. Now, they're they're not equal. The spreading of the gospel takes precedent. But even in the New Testament, there was a command from Paul to the churches. Uh, The wording is not in the New Testament, but it's in church records. There was what's called the order of the widows. In fact, this was the order that the ministry of nuns would come out of hundreds of years later. The order of the widows. And Paul said, Look, you're gonna have to wrap your head around this, so this is my prescription. This is scripture. It's probably not on your refrigerator, but this is scripture. He said, The widows that are to be cared for need to be widows indeed, or in other words, they need to be certified as widows. He said, They need to be over the age of 60. Uh, He said, Because if they're younger, they they still have enough life, they're gonna get married. And they'll have somebody to take care of them. Everybody over 60, that doesn't mean you are a lost cause. Okay, it does not mean you're a lost cause. Paul just said, let's look, this is where we draw it. A, a person, he was saying that a younger widow, and he said this to Timothy too, he said, a younger widow, they're they're probably going to remarry and they'll have a husband to take care of them, children to take care of them. That's understandable. That was just common sense. He said, so let them be old enough that they probably aren't going to remarry. And if they do, they're probably not going to have children. And he said, let them be not freeloaders, but let them have proved themselves by having a ministry in the church and by serving people in the church. And that was called the order of widows. Okay, beautiful, beautiful story. But what the enemy wanted to do is they said, this has got to be fixed. And they went to the apostles and said, fix it. And they said something that is so politically incorrect and so uh, uh, misogynistic in our culture, you know. They said, it's not right for us to wait on tables. Boy, can you imagine how that would go over with the National Organization of Women today, you know? It's not right for us to wait on tables. In our culture, they would have been saying, we're men, that's woman's work, but that wasn't what they were saying at all. It was not a reference to woman's work or men's work, not even remotely. It was this, They said, God has put on our hearts a heavy responsibility. We are to lead the church in prayer and we are to live in the Word and bring the Word of life to the congregation. That is our calling. Nothing about men and women. They said, if we take on this ministry, we will not spend time in the Word, we will not spend time in prayer, and everything we preach on Sunday will come out of simple sermons for simple preachers we have to stay true to what we're called to. And loved ones, the enemy, if he can't get you to make compromises in all these other levels, he'll get you doing a good work. But the problem is it's not your work. You know, statistics, it's an old statistic, but it, it, I, it's probably pretty close to accurate, is that 80% of the work in the church is done by 20% of the people. I don't know after COVID, I don't know if that's still true, but I will tell you this. Um, when the church, 80% of her work is done by 20% of the people, that is a church that is broken and just doesn't know it yet. So they said, you select seven men. They, they might've done the math. They might've said, we need seven men with this number of people under them, this number of widows that we have. And they, and they said, We will lay hands on them. We will bless them. We will anoint them and ordain them to this ministry. But we are going to go back to what God called us to do. And you've got a few weeks to think about it. You'll, you'll be able to plan on not being here that Sunday if you need to. <coughs> but we've got to answer the question number one, am I working for the Lord? And if I am, am I doing what he wants me to do? Or am I filling everyone else's agenda? And that's a, that's a tough, few questions when answered will cause more offense in the church than that one. Because nobody wants somebody to say, I need you to see so-and-so about that. We want whoever we want when we want them. And the devil says, if I can't get you to do what you ought to do, I will see to it that let's satisfy your drive to please God, but let's get you to do this instead of this. And what happened, I know I'm not preaching that sermon now, I'm just trying to lay the foundation. What happened when the apostles said, it's not right for us to do this ministry? Again, they weren't saying it's not right for us to do a menial task. They were not saying it's wrong for us to do women's work. It wasn't about roles, it wasn't about job descriptions. It was about staying on track. When they stayed on track, this is what the Bible says happened. The people were satisfied. The need was met. The church started growing again. And a great number of priests were led to the Lord. Loved ones, all of us have struggles at times. But I want to tell you, somebody that's just a chronic complainer, You can never satisfy them. But if somebody has a legitimate need, the legitimate need can be met. And the result of that legitimate need being met is that the church will just start growing again. And it will open up new opportunities. Something about that seemed to open the door to the priesthood. I suspect that the apostles staying true to the word and prayer influenced the spiritual heart of those priests in a way that would not have been influenced any other way. And it also opened a whole new door of ministry. One of the two most powerful figures in the remaining part of Acts are Philip and Stephen. Philip and Stephen. And do you know where those guys came from? They came from this ministry and God opened the door. Well, now we'll save it for the, for the Sunday. But let's, let's just do a Reader's Digest version, and then we're going to wrap it up with some Christian life lessons. Here's the first one, destruction. Satan's first, and I'm just going to run through these because it's a survey. Satan's first line of approach is obliteration. He generally seeks to achieve this through persecution. Jesus, when he was talking about the sower who went out to sow the seed, and he talked about the different type of soil, he said that some seed was on good soil, some seed was on rocky soil, some seed was on good soil, but it got distracted. He said, but there was some seed that just fell by the wayside. And it wasn't that, seed by the wayside was not a waste. It's amazing where stuff will grow. Uh, especially when the rains come. The seed by the wayside, that wasn't poorly sown. It was just part of the process. But he said the seed by the wayside was easy pickings for the fowls of the air and they came and obliterated it and they never even sprouted. That's what the enemy wants to do. It's not that the seed is bad. It's not that they weren't destined to be saved. It's that they were in a situation that was low-picking, low-hanging fruit for the enemy, so to speak. And the enemy always looks for a heart that is easily offended, easily hurt, easily uh, uh, pulled away. And he says, If I can just come in, I can just, okay, the George Foreman, if I can knock him out in the first round, I'll do that. If not, I'll have to try something else. But if I can just, if I can eliminate them to start with, there was a fighter one time named Jerry Cooney, who they said was going to be a great heavyweight champion. And he never did make it to be a heavyweight champion. They said his biggest problem is that he's never been hit hard enough to know if he can take a punch. Most of his fights were won in the first round. He was knocking people out. And somebody said, the biggest beef against you is that nobody knows how, if you can take a punch. He said, well, my strategy is to never know if I can take a punch. And he did learn later that he, 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 he wasn't invincible. But the enemy says, if I can destroy somebody, I'll do that. Revelation 12 tells us, Revelation 12 is a picture, I believe it's the one chapter in the book of Revelation that may not be fully prophetic about a future event. Um, maybe chapters 1 and 2, and then maybe chapter 12. I believe chapter 12 is a picture of how the enemy works. And when the woman was about to give birth to the child, he, the, the, the dragon was positioned waiting for the child to be born so that he could destroy the child and the dragon. And of course, if you know the the story, that didn't happen. The child was protected and the woman was protected, but it tells us something about the great dragon. His goal is as soon as a child is born at its weakest moment, at its most vulnerable moment outside the womb, at its weakest moment, it was the strategy of the dragon to devour the child and and to gobble it up. This is what we see happening in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 2, the the Spirit is poured out. People are getting saved left and right. The the devil doesn't know what to do because the Word of God is preached in power. And it was a Pentecostal service, to be sure, because not only was there the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but I tell you, the more we rely on, on the Lord, the more two questions will be asked over and over again What does this mean? And what do we do? The more we are a Pentecostal church, the more the question will be asked, what does this mean? What does that song mean? What what does what I feel mean? Why is my heart exploding like a cannon? Why do I feel like I need to run to the altar? Why, Why do I feel this strange? What does this mean? And then the second question that was asked on that day is, brothers, what shall we do? I tell you, we can have a glee club or we can come to the place where two great questions are asked every week. And it ought to be not just in church, but in youth, in children, in small groups, everywhere. What does this mean? And what must I do? And boy, that was was a, a, a powerful thing. And the enemy says, we can't counter this. So let's crush them. Let's command them not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. It was destruction. It is his attempt to make us feel that we've been separated from God. Um, And then, of course, we have Romans 8, where Paul said, what shall we say to these things? You know, if God be for us, nothing can be against us. What shall separate us from the love of God? That's at the point of persecution. Persecution... Is It's goal is to make you feel separated from God. <coughs> and Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, you need to understand nothing that happens by way of persecution can separate you from God. God is always there. Now I need to say this, I'm, I'm talking about step one, step two, step three, step four. But the fact of the matter is these things can be sequential. We were shown them a sequential so that we won't be ignorant of his devices, but they also occur Concurrently. In other words, uh, whether we're dealing with deception or, or, or distortion or dilution or distraction, all the time persecution was going on. Okay. I hope I'm not getting you confused. Let's go to number two. There was destruction. The second thing is deception. Deception. The second line of attack is to separate us from truth, okay? Um, during the heavy persecution that the early church experienced, what Paul kept doing, what Peter especially kept doing, what John kept doing, when they wrote, and James, they kept writing to the churches, going through persecution, and and, and especially Peter and Jude did this. He They said, whenever this destruction begins. The enemy will try to deceive you. And he, they kept pushing them back to the Word of God. They said the way to deal with deception is truth. The way to deal with the idea that I'm being separated from God is get verses that tell me I'm always in His care. Jesus in the wilderness when He faced the devil Himself now, we've all faced temptation. I don't know if any of us have actually faced the devil himself. I mean, we you may have. I don't feel like I have. I don't feel like I'm worthy of his attention, but his demons can be pretty uh, snarky too, you know. And uh, But Jesus faced Satan himself. And it's interesting that the devil used scripture in all of his attacks. And in fact... Um, that's the way he. We, we, that's the same thing he did in Genesis three. He distorted God's word. He took a portion of truth, and that's why the great Puritan theologian said this: Never believe the devil, even when he's telling the truth. Never believe the devil, even when he's telling the truth, because there's something in there. There's a hook in there that perverts. The truth, and that's called deception. We see that things are made toxic by the embracing of half truths with divided hearts. Loved ones, we need to understand that even legitimate ministry, even good works, end up carrying a certain toxicity when mixed with error. Uh, Loved ones, that's why, um, oh, I think. Oh, I can't remember the preacher I'm trying to quote, so I'll just take credit for it then. But um, no, somebody in the in the Reformation era said that every heresy that the church has had to deal with is the result of truth not being fully preached. Was that Corey? Corey was the great. Okay. <laughs> Every heresy is the result of truth not being fully preached. And guys, the stuff that we're dealing with from so many sources today where people that are talking about the, you know, they're trying to find a justification for this sin, justification for that sin, uh, a new teaching, a new this, a new that. It's because they do not understand the truth that was delivered to the church. And whenever you mix a little truth with a divided heart, is no telling what's going to come out of that, okay? Here's number three, okay? We've talked about destruction, deception. Number three, let's talk about distortion. And this is really, I need two words to describe this because it's not exactly the same. They're, they're brother and sister, they're twin words, but the word is distortion and dilution. The enemy wants to use that. He will take something beautiful and powerful and then distort it, okay? Distort it or dilute it. Now, distortion is pretty easy. That's the blending of truth and error. An example of this is grace covers all our sins. That is absolutely true. But it is not true that because grace covers all our sins, you can sin all you want to, and it doesn't matter. See, that's a great truth that is distorted. But dilution is the action of making something weaker. That's the purpose of dilution is to make something weaker, you know. Um, And you do it with the idea of making it weaker in force, in content, or in value. You take something... And you know that the only reason people will hold to it is because of the truth that's there. But you dilute it so that its force, its content, its value is weaker. For instance, you go to 1 Samuel when Israel went into battle. Israel learned a couple of lessons in battle. Well, more than two, but two of my favorites. They learned that you send Judah first. You send prayer and praise and worship first. That prefaces everything. The second thing is that you send the ark if you can in those early days because that ark represents the presence of God. And if you can go into battle with praise and if you can go into battle with the presence of God, you I got pretty good odds you're going to win the battle. But the problem is they said send the ark. But the ark in the days of Eli the priest when Samuel was just a young prophet, the ark had become um, little more than a rabbit's foot. It was just a good luck charm. They weren't sending the presence of God. They were sending the rabbit's foot into battle. And, you know, they were taking the Indiana Jones approach. It's, It's an object of mystical power. Then light and fire goes out from it. And there was no connection to the presence of God. So what happens is they lost the battle. The ark was captured. Now we know the story. When the ark got captured, the ark pretty well stood for itself and didn't need the help of Israel. Uh, and, in the, and the enemy ended up sending it back, you know, uh, uh, pulled by an ox uh, or calf and or a cow rather and pulled back. They, they didn't want it anymore. But I'm telling you that, The enemy will take something powerful and good and he will dilute it so that it loses its purity. We see this in Acts chapter 5. We'll go to Acts chapter 5 to study the principles of this. But Barnabas had shown that uh, God would bless, like I said, would bless uh, the the selling of property and the selling of land. What I talked about a few moments ago was illustrated in the life of Barnabas. He sold a piece of land and gave the money to the church and said, use this to take care of the needy saints. And he was a hero because of that. He didn't do it to be a hero, but he became a hero because of that. And then Ananias and Sapphira said, wow, I'd love to get my picture on the front page of Christianity today. I'd love to have the kind of esteem that Barnabas got for doing this. (coughs) And one of them over dinner that night said, you know, we've got a piece of land we could sell. Yeah, but that's all we've got. That's our retirement. That's everything or something like that was said. And they said, let's do this. Let's sell it for this amount. But let's tell them that we sold it for this amount and this is what we'll give. And then we'll be just like Barnabas. Everything we got, we gave to the Lord when actually we'll preserve our retirement and everything will be great. Well, Peter, being led by the Holy Spirit, said, look, the land was yours. You didn't have to sell it. And when you sold it, you could give part of it, you could give none of it, you could give all of it but you have done something nefarious. You have diluted what God has been doing in our midst. You have made it weaker in force or content and value. And this is not the way we're going to do church. And the enemy thought, well, if I can just get people to do a good thing, but to do it with ulterior motives... You know what he was saying? He was saying, that'll nullify all the power. That will nullify. He said, it'll be like sending the ark into battle. I know what the ark means. God knows what the ark means, but nobody else knows what the ark means and it won't be successful. Okay, Um, now here's the fourth word that I I want to give you. And it is the word distraction illustrated in chapter 6. And I've already explained that. I'm not going to go into it again. But I will say this about this distraction where the disciples thought, for us to keep the church going, we've got to do this. And I want to say this to every pastor. I want to say this to every elder. I want to say this to everybody that is a leader in any capacity. You will sooner or later, if you haven't already, you are sooner or later be faced with a solution that is workable doable, relatively easy, and wrong. And that's why you can't run the church like a business. See, I I grew up in a time where you selected elders, or we called them deacons. You selected deacons because they were good businessmen. And i I've known some good businessmen that did good work for the church. I've known some good businessmen that were good businessmen, but they were horrible deacons because they wanted the church to be run on a secular model instead of a spiritual model. The kingdom of God's like this. there's a passage in Proverbs that says talking about even giving. It says, there are those that that have money and there are those who tend to hold back more than is." profitable, so they'll never be in a bind. And what happens? They end up in a bind anyway. There are those that have money that say, you know, the logical things to hold back and to keep it, but we're just going to give it all away. We're going to use it for the glory of God. And what happens? They give away more than they should give away, but they end up with more than they had to start with. Jesus called it an upside down kingdom. He said, the first shall be last, the last shall be first, People understand. There was never a commission in the New Testament to attract businessmen to leadership. There was an attraction to call good family men to leadership. They needed to understand how family works, not how business works. And, oh boy, now, let me just say this. Corey wanted me to say all that other, but I'm not going to do it. I'm teasing. He's innocent. This sin is almost undetectable. And sometimes we see solutions that appear to be good business in the flesh, but are actually portents of disaster in the spiritual realm. We need to understand that, yes, a church needs to make good business decisions. Don't misunderstand me. Church doesn't need to be careless. That would be foolish. And, and always understand, pa- pastors are always wanting to, to handle things with accountability and sensibility and good business because loved ones, we're the ones that get hit first if we don't do that. It's our salaries that go out the window if we don't manage properly. It's, it's, it, you, you need to understand that. We understand the value of maintenance and of, and of responsibility, but we also understand that you reach a part in the kingdom of God where God says, Now, are you going to operate from this kingdom's principles? Or are you going to operate from this kingdom's principles? Well, that is amazing preaching. Let's wrap it up here. Let's wrap it up. Let's do the Christian life lessons, and this will set us up for these next few sermons. Um, here's number one. Be aware of your surroundings. Be aware of your surroundings. If you go to a self-defense class, you know, a natural self-defense class, one of the first things they're going to teach you, almost every class will teach you this, be aware of your surroundings. Think before you park here. Think before you go out at a certain time of night. You know, be aware of your surroundings. And that's a spiritual principle too. Jesus said to deliver us from evil. That's part of his prayer. There are days, not every day is like this, but there are days like the days of Nehemiah where they were trying to build the wall. And there was a time that um, the workers worked with a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other. So we need to be aware of our, um, uh, be aware of our surroundings. Here's life lesson number two. Understand, you, you, don't, don't be hoodwinked on this. The enemy never has a day of mercy. He never has a day of mercy. You know, I, I've told you this a half dozen times, but one of my favorite cartoons is a picture of a pastor in a hospital room praying over somebody. And the pastor's got his hair back, and, you know, slick back, and a, a, a typical character, character of a fire breathing pastor. And he tells the man that's sick, he says, renounce the devil. And the man who is sick says, I'm sorry, pastor, but in the shape I'm in, I shouldn't really antagonize anybody, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the devil takes no regard for that. He never has a day of mercy. Well, pastor, I feel, I feel like I'm mature in the Lord. I, I know how to handle the devil. Well, what do you mean? Well, it, I know when it gets bad enough, he's, he's fled from me. Well, I tell you, I think there's three basic reasons the enemy flees. In scripture. Number one, he leaves because you have resisted him. Um, because in James 4, 7, if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you and and resist the devil. He'll flee from you. But you've got to understand when you resist the devil, you're still resisting him in the strength of the Lord. Oh, I don't remember how long ago it was. We had Jackson one night and um, it, it he went out on the patio and I wondered if he knew about the concept of shadows and there was a really clear shadow of him on the patio. And I said, Jackson, look at that. And, and he looked and it kind of scared him for a minute. And I said, that's your shadow. And he said, you know, what's a shadow? He didn't understand. And I tried to explain what shadow was. And I said like, lift your arm, do this. He was amazed He had never seen a shadow or never thought about a shadow. And he went running into the house, Grandma, Grandma, I want to show you something. And she came out and he said, That's your shadow. And she did things. Your shadow does what you do. And and then all of a sudden he he did this. (laughs) And he got quiet. He said, "Oh, Grandma, I can whoop your butt. <laughs> and she said, what? He said, look how big I am. I'm my shadow's bigger than your shadow. And he didn't know that I was, he'd stepped into my shadow and I did whatever he did. I, <laughs> and it, it it was a few seconds, but whatever he did, I did. And you know he's <sighs> I didn't ruin it. I let him, I let him enjoy it. Grandma's a good sport. She, she said, but you wouldn't beat me up. He said, no, I love you. But he went in. You see, and a lot of times we think we can whip a lot more than we can whip because of our shadow. We just don't understand that Jesus stepped in. And when, even when we resist him, even when we resist him, It's still because we've drawn near to the Lord. Okay, why else does he leave? Because the Lord has rebuked him. Uh, Angel, uh, The the archangel uh, Michael, who we know in the end is going to personally subdue Satan. But in Jude 9, he tells us there was a time when he was contending with the devil about the body of Moses. It's a mystery. We don't understand what was going on. Some scholars have said that Israel held Moses in such high regard that if they knew where Moses was buried that it would be an eternal shrine that would become something idolatrous to them. We just don't know. But the enemy wanted the body and Michael said no. Uh, he was going to be hidden. God was going to bury him. And Michael had possession of the body. But even Michael in his great power, it said that he did not bring a railing accusation, King James, against the devil. It means he didn't bring a foolish, self-motivated you know, accusation against the devil. Even an archangel knows that when we face the devil, sometimes the best thing is to simply say, the Lord rebuke you. Lord rebuke you. <laughs> Glenn and I have a mutual hero that was really mad with the devil one time and told the devil to meet him at church. He was going to whip him. Now, I don't advise you to do that. And if you do, please don't do it here. <laughs> but he, if I remember the story correctly, he went into the room where he was going to meet the devil and there was just this, this profound smoke that overcame him and he went down and when he came to, the walls had been clawed like from some savage beast. And that was the last time he told the devil to go to the Sunday school room. He's going to whip him. But I also know enough about that man to know that he defeated the enemy many times by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we just learn that at the end of the day, it's the Lord that does the rebuking. You say, well, I know I was in a battle the other day and I was just fighting for my life and just holding on and and he left me. Well, praise God. But he may have left you to wait for another opportunity. See, that's what happened with Jesus. The devil tempted him during these 40 days and the enemy left him. And one translation says he left him to wait for a more opportune time. In other words, he realized he's in over his head. He's not going to get Jesus to fall. But maybe there will be another time that would be better. Sometimes the devil leaves us because he says, well, there will be a better time. So I, I want you to understand, the de- we always draw close to the Lord. But the devil never leaves you because he has a day of mercy. Number three, Always trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord, be strong in His mighty power by putting on His armor that will enable you to stand, especially in the day of evil. Sometimes we'll joke around here, and we don't see a way out of something, and we'll say, we're just going to have to pray. And somebody, jokingly, will always say, "My word, has it come to that? We, we've got to pray. Has it come to that?" And of course, we're joking. But too many of us live like Roger Ramjet. I know that's a generation that's not represented in this room, those of us that watch Roger Ramjet on Saturday mornings. But Roger Ramjet was a great American hero. He was the equivalent of Captain America today. But he was a cartoon hero. And Roger Ramjet didn't have any superpowers, but he did have this one little thing that helped him. When he got in over his head, he had a collection of super proton energy pills. And when he took a super proton energy pill, it gave him, and I quote, the strength of 20 atomic bombs for a period of 20 seconds. (laughs) And you knew when he took the pill, I mean, stars and stripes were going off, American flags were waving, the Russian spy was going down, Soviet tanks were going to be turned back. Roger Ramjet had the power he needed for 20 seconds And then you just waited, knowing next week he's going to need a super energy pill again. (laughs) But we've treated Jesus like a super proton energy pill. When all else fails, (laughs) I want to tell you, loved ones, sometimes your prescription runs out. Sometimes you don't have any super proton energy pills. Sometimes you can turn on that song, you know, from Hillsong that got you through the last battle And it ain't getting you through this battle. You see, that's why we have to trust in the Lord. I guess the best way to say it is like this. Brooks dry up. Elijah went to the brook, but brooks dry up. And the reason brooks dry up is because God doesn't want a group of people that trust in the brook. He wants a group of people that trust in the creator of the brook. And that's why we tend to get mad at God. But it seems like things just dry up. Lord, you've always provided this. Now it's not here anymore. Or it may happen through the death of a loved one. Lord, I needed this person, but they're not in my life anymore. Or, or you move out of town. You can't get to the church you want to go to. And the list goes on and on. And why did my brook dry up? It's because God's about to teach you something profound. And that is the brook is just something he used. But he can use anything. He can use a vial of oil. He can use a widow's home. He can use fire from heaven. Oh, we got to go. Trust in the Lord. Stay in the Lord's presence. Um, With the help of the Lord, I'll be through in five minutes. I promise you that. But now it's up to the Lord. I said with his help. (laughs) We'll see if he comes through or not. That's why my whole ministry has been geared to get people to develop a devotional life with the Lord. That's everything, no matter what we've talked about, it pulls people back to that because that is the one thing that never fails to be a dynamic part of an overcomer's life. You say, but, Pastor, I, you've been telling me that for 28 years, I haven't got it right yet. Uh, then, then try one more time. Yeah. Then try one more time. See, it has to start with desire. You have to want it more than you want anything. Right. You, then the desire has to find an avenue of discipline. You see, I, I think that a devotional life based on discipline is going to fall, it's going to fail. You're going to get to the point where it means nothing to you. <coughs> because please hear me, discipline is the lowest form of devotion. It's, it's necessary. When you get up and go to work in the morning, you, you need to have the discipline to say, I'm a married man and I'm not going to entertain anything that's illegitimate. But I want to tell you if the, if the temptation is strong enough, you need more than a, I'm in control. I'm strong. I'm, I have the discipline. And what wife wants to know that her husband is true to me because he's got strong will? Well, he better have strong will, but there needs to be the next thing delight. There needs to be passion. Your wife wants to know that you're true to her because you're madly, passionately in love with her, not because you have a steel will. Devotion begins with desire. Then you let God give you a pattern of discipline. Let it be a, let it be a sensible discipline. Don't say, Lord, I'm asking you to give me a discipline to read 15 chapters a day. That'll work for a while, but sooner or later, you're going to come up on Psalm 19. <laughs> Those of you that read Psalm 19 know what I'm talking about. <coughs> Not everything, oh, well, never mind here's the last thing. And and, and I want to say this to desire, discipline, delight, beware the trap of Ephesus. Ephesus had a uh, a miracle. Ephesus had a miracle ministry and is arguably the most effective church in the New Testament. At least one of the top three, Um, depending on how we interpret a few things. But this is what the Lord said about Ephesus. I mean, they had phenomenal pastors. John was there. Uh, 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 Timothy was there. Paul was there. I mean, you talk about a Hall of Fame row of pastors. But this is what Jesus said by the time the church was, was, was roughly 45 or 50 years old. He said... You do all the right things, but you've lost your love. So you you need to stay in the Lord's presence, not through discipline. Now there are days discipline will keep you there. That's okay. But the But the norm needs to be delight. Here's the last thing I want to share with you. Set your expectations upon victory. I'm not talking about just positive confession, though we need a positive confession. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for things unto God and the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus. I probably need to talk about this in another sermon. (coughs) But we use this verse. We Pentecostals use this verse to just justify our stance on don't drink wine. You know, don't be drunk with wine, and and that's what we use it for. Don't drink wine, and uh, that's okay. I, I have no I have no issue with don't drink wine, but the problem is that's not what it's talking about. Uh, it says don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And this is saying something very important. And I'm going to say this, and then because God's telling me he's going to keep his end of the bargain, I need to stop. This is not, when Paul is saying all of the things that they have to contend with, he says, You understand something. And when he says, Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit i tell you what I believe he's saying, and when I do another sermon, I'll explain it. He says, you can't live in this world without being under the influence of something else. And wine is not the influence that's gonna bring you victory. You've gotta be under the influence of the spirit. See, wine can alter your appearance. uh, Well, it can alter your appearance. (laughs) Or, Or alter others' appearance to you, I guess. Wine can alter your behavior, but he said, and you need, if you're going to survive this, you need something to alter your behavior, but it's not an intoxicant. It is the filling of the Holy Spirit. I, I, I'll tell you something I want us to come to church with, with uh, on the front of our mind during these next four sermons I want you to come with the understanding Paul says, if you're going to win against the enemy, you you need to be full of the Spirit. We're a Pentecostal church, but we have to be careful because I'm afraid at times because we're so cosmopolitan and we've got people from so many backgrounds, it's, it's almost at times like I don't think we put the emphasis that we need to put on the experience of being filled with the Spirit. I, we haven't neglected that. and We've certainly preached that, but my, my pastor used to say this. He said, he said, when you go to the prom, he said, you leave with the one who brought you, or you dance with the one who brought you. And I think if we're going to be a Pentecostal church, I'm not drawing a line in the sand saying, you got to do this, you got to do that. But I think we need to rediscover the power of the Holy Spirit. I think we need to understand that it's not culturally relevant music that has made our church grow. It's not Hollywood-looking pastor that's made our church grow. Oh, I'm getting way too many amens on that, way too many. You know I'm kidding. It's, it's, not, it's not any of the games that the church growth movement tell us we need to play. What little growth we've had, what little success we've had, I, I say little, I'm talking about in the world's eyes, I'll I'll, I'll need to say that better what success we've had what growth we've had it's not been because of programming it's been because of the presence of the Holy Spirit and I want to tell you if we're going to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might it's going to come from a yielded life to the ministry of the Holy Spirit let's pray Father in Jesus name we need you so much Lord how we need you If there's anyone here or watching at home, anyone over in Brown Chapel that does not know Jesus as your Lord, I invite you to come forward here or come forward in Brown Chapel or call the number that will be on your screen. We are not ignorant of his devices. So that means since we're not ignorant of his devices, we're going to walk in liberty and victory. Give us that help, Lord. Give us that help as we flesh it out over the next few weeks and get a little more up close and personal. Lord, next week, with the help of the Lord, we're going to look at how he wants to destroy us through persecution, but we're going to look at how we're made victorious through that same persecution. Father, the bottom line is whatever we need, it's found in you. Ministry team, would you please come forward and we're going to dismiss... If you need prayer, please call the number or come to one of the prayer teams that's at the front of the auditorium. Guys, we win. I mean, we're going to win. The question, the question is how much joy are we going to experience while we're winning? It's joy unspeakable and full of glory. Stand with me, would you please? I love you so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you for for listening to me every week. It means more to me than I can say. And the Lord is here. His spirit is here. And if you need prayer, please come. We'd be glad to pray with you. We love you. God bless.